Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We're going to pause our study of Luke this morning, and, and the elders asked me to, to give a message focused on Mother's Day, and I was thinking through biblical themes, and having about four years ago taught through the pastoral epistles, Titus chapter 2 came to mind as probably the most succinct and clear, direct picture of biblical womanhood. As we celebrate motherhood, what is it we are celebrating? What is it that is beautiful in our mothers? What, what is it that they're doing that is lovely and good and right and true? And I would suggest to you that what Paul lays out here in three to five verses comprises nearly all of the beauty, the excellence you've seen in your mothers. And and additionally, we live in a culture that is very confused and in many respects very rebellious about the various roles in family, parents, husbands, fathers, wives, children. And so again, I think it's useful and helpful for us to, to look at what God says as we look at the authentic pattern. So we're just going to look at three verses this morning found in Titus chapter 2 and try to get a biblical picture of womanhood, a biblical picture of womanhood, that we might aspire to it, that we might rejoice and commend it when we see it, that we might rear our daughters, might honor womanhood biblically. Let's read Titus chapter 2, verses 3-5. through five. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. The word of God may not be reviled. And here, in in three simple verses, the Apostle Paul, um, speaking to Titus, lays out what I think are the the key instructions and challenges for women. Um, Before we look in, we've got to set the context. We haven't we aren't studying through Titus. If you turn back to chapter 1, Titus is named after Paul's missionary companion and co-worker whom he left at Crete. You pick it up in verse 5 of chapter 1. The Apostle Paul tells us why he's written this letter, why he has left Titus where he has left him in Crete. Verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order. That's really the theme Paul had planted churches in Crete, and they're in their formative stage. And Titus, like a midwife, is meant to fully birth them, bring them to maturity. The first task that was was needed, if you finish verse 5, to appoint elders in every town as he directed. So Titus, having unique authority, people call these the pastoral epistles. No pastor I know has the authority to appoint elders. Titus is Paul's delegate He's his proxy. He's his man on the spot. This letter authorizing him to do the things he's doing. And Titus has the authority invested by Paul to appoint elders. And so we start with the teaching. Verse 11, Titus needs to silence some people. Verse 13, Titus needs to sharply rebuke some others. And thus closes out chapter 1. In chapter 2, we move now to church life. The household codes. Pick up verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. 
It's interesting, we think of doctrine, we think oftentimes of pie-in-the-sky, esoteric, abstract concepts, but look at what Paul then reveals to be the content of sound, or literally healthy, teaching. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And then our passage next addressing older women. Verse 4, younger women. Verse 6, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. This probably indicating that, that Paul exhorts Titus here, that, Paul is himself, that Titus is himself a younger man, likely a single man, um, if he's given himself to this missionary work with Paul and his team. Verse 9, we now address slaves or bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And so in those first 10 verses, Paul broadly, quickly, moves through the major classes and categories in the church. The church is made up of older men. The church is made up of older women. The church is made up of younger men, younger women, slaves, And God has a word for all of them. This is the outflowing of healthy or sound doctrine, which is striking because, again, he's assuming healthy teaching will lead to healthy living. Verse 1 again, As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Then we get into all these lifestyles and characteristics. And so I wish we had time to go through the entire household table. We don't. This morning we've set aside to focus on a biblical picture of womanhood. So we'll be focusing on verses 3 through 5. But that's the context in which this instruction occurs. Which then raises a question. Okay, men, is this a message where you can zone out? Where you can you know, play angry birds? You can, you can text your friends? No, notice that Paul wrote this letter. And even though it's addressed to Titus, if you look over at the end of chapter 3, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace with you all. So even though Paul has addressed this letter to Titus, it's clear Paul expects this letter to be read by more than just Titus. It's be read by the church. This isn't simply a personal correspondence. In many respects, the letter itself functions to authorize Titus to do the remarkable and unique things he is to do. So Paul is intending the entire church to read this letter. And so that means then he intends the entire church to hear his instructions for older men. He intends the entire church to hear his instructions for older women, the entire church to hear his instructions for younger women, and so on. Why is that? Well, for a number of reasons. One is we should all have the same goal in mind. We should all be moving towards the same target. That way when we see people growing in godliness in their particular sphere and place, we can encourage them. When people need help, we can help them. When people need correction, we can correct them. We're all on the same page about what God is calling us to. And so husbands, this matters. The the picture of womanhood here, God is calling you to disciple and shepherd your wife into. For children, young, young women, this is what God is calling you to grow up into. Young men, this is what you're looking for in a wife. Sound teaching leading to sound living. So we're going to look at this in three points. First, mature womanhood. Mature 
womanhood. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Now, in in the ESV, what they translate as reverent behavior, literally, I mean, its root is priestess-like behavior. And the concept is the dignity, the poise, grace, the solemnity in some sense, the seriousness of someone conducting work in a temple. But more to the point, for Christians, and and last um, Reformation Day in November, we talked about the priesthood of believers. As a Christian, as an adopted child of God, we are a nation of priests, a holy priesthood. And so what this means then is, and here's your blank, behavior befitting a servant of the Lord. Behavior befitting a servant of the Lord. And we've got to pause here to make the, make the point that what follows is for Christian women. This household code is for inside the church. And that's an important distinction to make. If, if we don't understand that this is for regenerate, born again, blood-bought, ransomed, redeemed, forgiven women... This will become a list of moralism, a list of do's and don'ts. And then the good, the good girls do these things, the bad girls don't know. This is rather how people who are born again, who are saved, are to live out in their faith. And you'll notice that the older men live out in their faith one way, and the older women live out in their faith one way, and the younger women, the younger men, the slaves, we're all called to live out our faith. But we, we dare not skip over that step. And so that the first challenge for a picture of biblical womanhood is that you're saved, you're redeemed, you're Christ, that you have turned from your sin, that you've turned to trust the Lord Jesus Christ in, in repentance and faith, that you've looking to Him for your forgiveness, looking to Him as the satisfaction for God's wrath on your behalf. You're trusting in His death, His resurrection. And based on that faith, you've become a child of God. You've become a priestess to God. Also, that first statement, um, reverent in behavior, kind of serves as an overarching category. He goes on to define it further negatively. What does it mean to not be reverent in behavior? Not slanderers or slaves to much wine. And, and part of what we're to see here is what Paul has in mind, and, and we've talked about this, is that there is ministry and work for all people in the body of Christ. And what Paul is envisioning here, I think, when he thinks of mature older women, is the danger of idleness and what types of things that will happen. We hear that idle hands are the devil's playground. And Paul's day, clearly, and I think to some degree today, some of the besetting sins, the besetting snares for older people, older women, here would be slander and drink, gossip and, and, and drunkenness. And so he says, I want you to be in a way that is befitting a servant of the Lord, not as a slanderer, not a slave to much wine. Literally, the word for slanderer is a devil. Because, of course, the devil is the one who is the slanderer and the accuser of the brethren. So there's a contrast. I want you to behave like priestesses, not devils. The the point here is that older women are to be dignified and self-controlled in word, and self-controlled in deed. Self-controlled in word, self-controlled in deed. This, this indeed is fitting in with Paul's teaching elsewhere. In 1 Timothy 5.13, he 
He, he urges that the younger widows remarry lest they become ensnared with the dangers of, of idleness. And he says, besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but gossips, busybodies, saying what they should not. So there's a do this, don't do this. There's an there's a older woman with a dignified, reverent, godly character, not a gossip, not a slanderer, not a busybody, self-controlled in word. First Peter 3, 4 says that if your adornment is the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in God's sight. That's beauty. That's, that is what we should be aspiring for. That's what should be our hallmarks. Self-controlled in word and self-controlled in deed. Alcohol in the Bible is the paradigmatic picture of all addiction. Um, the Bible doesn't speak directly to pharmaceuticals. It doesn't speak directly to other drugs. But, but alcohol is its, is its paradigmatic picture of addiction. And, and in fact, that's not even a biblical category. We talk about addiction, which, which sounds more like the disease model, as if it's something you can catch. The biblical picture is slavery. Slavery. They're not to be um, slaves to much wine. Enslaved to it. And of course, these are the types of things that can befall people who are being idle. And what we are to learn, older women, is that God has work and ministry for you. Um, you're not to be idle. None of us are. What is that work? Point D, to be teachers of good. Possibly even a word that Paul invented or coined here. Good teachers. Older women, you're to teach. Now, pe- people get caught up sometimes in the fact that the Paul makes clearly in, in 1 Timothy 2 that women are not to hold the teaching offices in the church. They're not to be elders. That by no means means that God doesn't have teaching, work, and ministry for women. And you want to think about this. They're to teach the younger women. They're to teach the children. That's, that's the majority of the church. Women are not permitted to, but called to teach. That's quite a sphere of ministry. And don't forget that Paul is having a young single man exhorting the older women. And what you're going to see is this ripple effect as Titus is calling on the older women to, to, to forsake idleness, to forsake gossip, to, to forsake self-indulgence. He's calling them to a ministry of, of teaching, modeling, discipleship. And that then is going to lead to more teaching. So you see Titus doing the initial teaching, and that leads to a group of older women who are then teaching and passing on and discipling the younger woman, which brings us to point to discipled womanhood. Discipled womanhood. We've seen mature womanhood. Now we move to discipled womanhood. So to train, what are the older women teaching? To train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. In fact, probably gets the largest treatment. But I want you to notice something first off. Paul is assuming what would in his day almost certainly be the, the normal situation for younger women. Even today, most people eventually marry, not everyone. And before the advent of affordable, dependable birth control, most marriages produce children, certainly not all of them. 
And Paul is not dealing with the exceptions other passages in the Bible do. Paul is dealing with the norm. So so if this doesn't speak to exactly where you are, that's okay. That's fine. God's Word has other things for you. Understand Paul is speaking to the norm of his day, that most women marry, most marriages produce children. And so that's what Paul is speaking to. So please, if, if that's not where you're at, if you long for marriage, you long for children, or whatever condition you're in, Paul is speaking broadly here to the normal situation in life. That's all. There are other passages of Scripture that deal with those specific cases. But I want you to notice something else, that what Paul says that they are to do will require training. Training. It's where we get our word gymnasium from. Which assumes then this is not going to come naturally. This is not going to come quickly. This is not going to come easily. It requires training. Also notice that this training is not... The training Titus is to train the younger woman to do. Paul probably very wisely wants to uh, recognize at least two things. One, the types of things he wants the young woman trained in, Titus, I, would be virtually uh, unable to teach, certainly by, by example, by experience. And second, as a way of protecting Titus from any appearance or actuality of temptation as he deals with the younger women in all purity. Here's a ministry for older women and ladies, our gray-haired saints, God has ministry for you. If you've learned things, if you've grown, if you've matured, it's not to bottle it up. It's to pour and train and disciple other women. So, so I want to challenge you. If God has been good to you, if God has grown you up, if, if, if you have matured in the faith, good. Now find other younger women who need your help. Because the things you're about to read will be difficult, they'll be challenging, they'll be countercultural. And by implication, they're not going to come easily, they're not going to come quickly, and they're not going to come on their own. The younger wives, mothers, women need the older women to train them, to help them, to encourage them, to model for them what is to follow. And Paul starts then in this training with, with the outward, outward focus to love their husbands and children. And that say, seem odd. Who needs training to love their kids? Who needs training to love their husband? We got married after all because we were in love, love, love. But anyone who's made it past three or four months in marriage realizes that that euphoric, giddy, drunken feeling. That's a biblical term, drunk with love, Proverbs 6, that, you, that usually gets us into marriage, does not sustain us all the way through marriage. Can I get an amen? Okay, okay. Just wanted to make sure that wasn't my experience only. Okay, okay. Just worried there for a moment. And there are days and there are times when I, when I revisit that euphoric love for my wife and there are other times when, when I wake up and she's my friend and I love her, but, but I'm not intoxicated with love. Uh, part of our culture's problem is we view love and the experience of love as the energy, as the safeguard for marriage, what keeps marriages safe. Um, C.S. Lewis, I'm going to bungle this quote, said its exact opposite. Marriage is the institution for the preservation of love. You, know, you think of a love as a fire, it's burning in your bosom, in your chest. Fires need fireplaces, or they start wildfires, don't they? They need, they need direction. And marriage 
is the context for love to be passionate, to burn, to be useful in its energy and not to destroy. We see people in the name of love, destroying marriages, destroying families. These younger women need to be trained to love their husbands. And when we get past sort of the Disney, euphoric, emotional, existential understanding of love, I think it makes sense. Turn, turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Why would young women need to be trained to love their husbands? Well, for thinking of love biblically, I think that'll make a lot of sense. This, of course, is the famous love chapter, commonly read at weddings. And as I read this passage, I'm going to plug in wives, younger women. Love is patient. Younger women, wives, need to learn to be patient with their husbands. Because I certainly give my wife many needs to be patient with me. It is kind, being kind to their husbands. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. Because rudeness never, never is a problem in marriage, right? It's not insist on its own way. How many marriage fights would we would cease to exist if, if husbands and wives could love each other biblically and not insisting on their own way? It is not irritable. It is not resentful. Resentment, training wives not to resent their husbands, training wives not to be irritated with their husbands. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I think given a biblical understanding of love, you can see why it takes training. It'll take time. It'll take modeling. It'll take encouragement. Back to Titus. So training the young women to love their husbands. Yeah, you don't need much training to get that sort of euphoric, giddy, you know, butterflies in your stomach type of love. That's not generally what the Bible is talking about when it talks about love. It's talking about something more greater, deeper, more permanent. So the older women are training the younger women to love their husbands. That means, ladies, that rather than egging on and cheering on the stories of how the husband messed up and going, oh, I can't believe he did that. You're doing the opposite. You're encouraging the younger woman to, to overlook the faults, the weaknesses of their husbands. We, we have plenty of weaknesses and faults. Make no mistake. We need, I need this type of love for my wife because I'm sure I'm not an easy man to love. But so often what you see is when women get in a circle and they talk, it's rather than a, a encouraging and training to love, it can become a henpecking, it can become a, a tearing down. These things ought not to be. And that ties back even up to the mature woman not being slanderers, but self-controlled in word. So loving their husbands, they're also loving their children training them to love their children. Then you think, Pastor Jeremy, well, surely this is the one thing you don't need training. I mean, after all, what parent can't help but love their children? You, you, they come in, they're born, you hold them, and you can't help it. Who needs training to love their children? Well, in a culture that kills as many of our children as we do before they're born, 
I think we do. I think we do. And again, we've got to think of love biblically. Love isn't generally warm, fuzzy feelings. It's not that God felt so dandy about the world. God's love led him to give his son. Our love is meant us to call us to be sacrificial. That's going to mean spending time with children. That's going to mean training them up in godliness and righteousness. Or think of this type of love, Proverbs chapter 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And we had so much interest and so much feedback from our recent series on parenting. It's clear that the younger mothers, younger fathers need the help. They need the encouragement. They need the instruction to love their children in a fully orbed biblical sense, not just in a, I feel so great about my kids. Loving your children Biblically, fully, takes work, takes training, takes instruction, takes modeling, and takes time. And older women, this is, this is the ministry God's calling you to do. These, these young couples with their first kid who don't know what they're doing, who are, who are just, I mean, I was there, scared, terrified. What do I do? Am I going to hurt this kid? What if I drop him? And training them to love their children, love their husbands. That's the outward focus. Inwardly, they are to be self-controlled and pure. I think really this is just sort of a restatement of, of that first category for older women, reverent behavior. And these are just things that all Christians are called to. The fruit of the Spirit is, after all, self-control. And again, I think Paul is, is turning around the corner, focusing that, that just as the older women are not to be idle and fall into this, the uh, dangers of idleness, so the younger women have work to be doing as well. They're to be self-controlled. They are to be pure. In um, hold on. In Second Timothy, chapter two, or is it First Timothy? Second Timothy, first. First Timothy, chapter two. Um, Paul. Paul calls the women there to be modest. As part of pure and self-controlled. It's, it's it's again that inward and outward deportment. It's that. Self-control of word and deed. It's the purity of heart, clean on the inside, clean on the outside, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Not only do they be self-controlled and pure, then we get to working at home. This is probably not a very popular verse in, in the modern culture. I want to speak for a moment what this means and what it doesn't mean. Paul is not here forbidding work outside of the home. We'll see in a moment there are biblical models of that. Lydia, the seller of purple, had a business. We'll look at Proverbs 31 here in just a minute and see the activities she does. But what Paul is saying, and again assuming, and here's your blank, is that the home is the primary sphere of ministry and responsibility for young mothers, younger women. The home is the primary sphere of ministry and responsibility. The word for working at home is also used in 1 Timothy 5.14, a slightly different version of it that my wife likes. In 1 Timothy 5.14, he says, I would have the younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households. And the word there is oika despotos. Oikia means house. I don't think you need a translation for despot. (laughs) House ruler, house manager. And, and my wife, when I don't put the uh, 
the dishes back where I used the wrong towel, will frequently say, I'm the Oika Despotas. And she'll, she actually does do that. Um, <laughs> so this isn't just saying she's just a lowly worker. She's managing. She's running the household. And this, this is challenging for us because we live in a culture with the whole women's liberation movement that, that tells women over and over and over and over, you're being squashed, you're being um, demeaned, that that type of work is, is little, it's small, that really to be fulfilled, really to come into your own, really to be your own person, you need to pursue a career, you need to excel in your career, that's where you're going to find value, that's where you're going to find meaning. I have no doubt that God has called some women to careers, I do not think ultimately that is where you will find your fulfillment and your value. I don't think on your deathbed, men or women will look to their workplace with delight and joy as the crucible of their disciple-making, where the most valuable ministry they did in their life was. I'm quite certain for the overwhelming majority of men and women, it will be the home. And again, people will charge Paul with sexism. It's ridiculous. Again, before the advent of affordable, dependable birth control, which is, what, 70 years old at most? Again, most marriages produced offspring, and then in a more of a sustenance environment and economy, it's, it's not an issue of patriarchy or oppression. It's simple facts of life and ergonomics where somebody's biologically enabled to feed the young child and somebody has to work. And it goes all the way back to the garden with the, with the curse to Adam and Eve, right? What was God's curse to Adam? His labor, his work, with the sweat of his brow, he'd bring forth food from the ground. What was the woman's curse? In pain, He'll bring forth children. And our culture is insisting that a woman is only a woman and only fulfilled when she not only takes on her share of the curse, but her husband's. I'm also very suspicious of technology-dependent morality, a morality that can't even exist in a world without that. So again, turn, turn to Proverbs 31, because I don't want you to think that that means somehow working outside of the home is wrong. Rather, understand, ladies, what your first priority and responsibility is what your first priority and responsibility is. In Proverbs 31, we again get a picture of the idealized woman from King Lemuel's mother. And I want you to see all the things she does. Verse 10. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts her. He will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like merch, the ship of the merchants. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. So even though she's got staff, she's up early. She's working. She's making sure her kids have food. She's managing her household. Verse 16. She's not just in her home. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength, makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands in the distaff, her hands to the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor. She reaches out her hands to the needy. 
She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine, linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates. When she sits, when he sits among the elders of the land, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom. The teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household. She does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he will praise her. Many women have done excellently, but you have surpassed them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But the woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. This is a woman who is running her household. This is a woman who understood that responsibility, and yet she's planting vineyards, she's selling goods, she's buying property. So Paul is not saying to the woman, your place is in the home, just stay there. Rather, here is your primary ministry and responsibility. And for many, many younger women, especially as God blesses you with children, you will find your hands quite full simply with that. For others, you have additional time, resources, and energy, and you're doing other things as well, and praise God for that. But please don't let anyone tell you that managing a household, rearing children is somehow demeaning. It is the most valuable, precious ministry you can have. God has entrusted you with eternal image bearers that you can shape, mold, and disciple. Don't, don't, don't buy into the lie of our culture that somehow says that you're doing something lesser, you're doing something less important, less valuable. No. Now, okay, moving on. They are to be kind. The word translated kind, agathos, means good or useful. And, and the picture is this. As these young wives are relating to others, they're being helpful. They're being useful. They're being kind. Ephesians 4.32 says this. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This, this is what younger women should be known for, kindness. And then, submissive to their own husbands. Submissive to their own husbands. Well, if our culture didn't like the notion of managing a household, our culture certainly hates this last point. Uh, it's a point made emphatically in Scripture. And again, it's because our culture has believed a lie, bought into a lie. The lie the culture sells is this. For someone to be submissive to someone else, they have to be lesser in dignity, lesser in worth, lesser in value than the person to whom they submit. That's a lie. My children are not lesser in dignity, not lesser in value, not lesser in worth. But let me use a better example. I'm not lesser in dignity, value, and worth than a police officer. But if you think of the triune God, right, who exists simultaneously as three persons in eternal fellowship, the Son is not lesser than the Father, right? He's fully God. He's not little G God. He's not sort of God. He's fully God. Fully. In him, the Godhead dwelt, right? He did not consider equality with God, equality with God, a thing to be held onto tight-fistedly. And yet Jesus says he does nothing on his own authority, but only what the Father wills him to do. See, within 
the Godhead within the Trinity, we find an equality of persons with a subordination, a hierarchy of, of relationships. So that the Father sends the Son, and the Son does the will of the Father. The Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. So we dare not believe the lie that says for someone to be subordinate, to submit to someone else means they're inferior, it means they're lesser, it's demeaning. Or we have to say the Son is inferior. The Son is lesser. The Son is not as honorable as the Father. This is part of what it means for God to make us in, a, in His own image. And in the Genesis 1 and 2, God says, let us make man in our image. And so the, the God who exists as three in one, in equality of being and ordering of relationships, makes a married couple. People want to look for a wedding ceremony in Genesis 2. You're not going to find it. Adam says, this is my wife, not this will be my wife. In some mysterious way, God makes Eve as Adam's wife. I don't get it. Just Adam says, this, this is my wife. And so when God wants to image himself, he makes two in relationship who are yet one in equality of being and in ordering of relationship. That's not accidental. It models, it images something true about God. And so women, God is not calling you to submit to every man. Rather, God is, wants the women trained. And again, this is not going to come easily. It's not going to come naturally. Part of the curse, again, is God saying, um, your will will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. That there will be this desire within women. No, I want to take the reins. I want to be in charge. I want to be boss. That's, that's the result of the fall. So God is saying women need training. They need help to do this. It doesn't come easily. Because It'd be one thing. We have a hard enough time submitting ourselves as the bride of Christ to a perfect husband, don't we? How much harder, men, is it for your wives and my wife who have to deal with sinful people like us? So again, ladies, this is where we need to rise up and encourage each other, and especially training the younger women. It's not an easy thing. It's not because we're better. It's how God has ordered and arranged marriage. They're to be submissive to their husbands. And this is, again, a, a, a consistent biblical teaching. Probably nowhere fuller than Ephesians chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Again, your, your children are going to learn a lot about what it means to honor and submit and respect as you're calling them to do that to you, as they see how the wife does that to the husband, as they see how the husband does that to the government, to the church, to God. Perhaps some of the reason we have problems with rebellious children is we're not modeling authority well, that what the kids are learning is it stinks to be under authority. I hate being under authority. I resent being under Authority. Well, they're going to pick up on that. Rather, they can learn. This is a beautiful thing. God made this, and he's wise, and he is good, and he did this for a benefit. And I trust him, even when, even when my, this is the wife speaking, even when my husband makes a knucklehead call, I'm going to trust that God knows what he's doing as I lean into that. Your children can learn that too. So we've got mature womanhood discipled womanhood. And then with the last phrase of verse 5, honorable womanhood. So what's at stake in all this? 
So what? Here's what God says. And I'm assuming for most of us, we care what God says. But but Paul adds on an extra so what? What's at stake? The word of God's being honored is at stake. That probably means I think this is somewhat important. So that the word of God may not be reviled. If we refuse to embrace this, if we kick and push back against this, not only are we being disobedient, we are inviting reviling of God's word by the, by the world around us. How, how does that work? Well, because the world is watching, isn't it? The world is watching. And the world, one of the things the world has in common with Jesus is the world hates hypocrisy. Jesus hates hypocrisy. And so the world looks at Christians, and especially with the, with the issues in our culture today about marriage and gay marriage and the LGBTQ issues, they hear Christians loudly, vociferously talking about the sacredness of marriage, the inviolate nature of it. You can't change it. God's defined this, except when we don't want to embrace his design for marriage. And the world sees that. And the world sees disordered homes not, not Christians struggling, striving to do this, but people who just rejected it out of hand. I'm not submitting to anybody. It's just not my style. And they rightly call us hypocrites. Because on the one hand, we want to talk about the sacredness of marriage. We want to talk about how you can't mess with marriage. Well, except when I want to mess with marriage. And then they just say, well, why can't we do the same thing? You guys pick and choose the parts you like, and we're going to pick and choose the parts we like. That's just one way the Word of God gets reviled when we refuse to embrace God's pattern for the home and for marriage. Rather, our lives, point B here, sound living should confirm and adorn sound doctrine. I want to close with that thought that for Paul, truth and doctrine is not a matter of stuff up in the head. It's it's living out your life. Turn back to chapter 1. Sound living confirms and adorns sound doctrine. And Paul has been speaking to Titus about the types of men he wants him to silence. I want you to notice what he says in verse 16. Because what Paul says about false teachers is equally possibly true about us. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. You see that? They profess to know God, they deny Him by their works. We can profess to know God, and this morning the, the light is on, being shining on womanhood, and there's other passages that deal with men and fathers and other passages with children. We're looking at women. L- ladies... Mothers, sisters, we, we need to embrace this. We need to take up this charge or God's word will be reviled. We need to confirm and not deny the things we say we believe with our deeds. They profess to know God, but deny him with their works. We need to profess to know God and confirm that with our works. And adorn means to make beautiful. Look down at the, the end of this paragraph back in chapter 2 to verse 10. Middle of the verse, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We don't change the doctrine of God our Savior, but we can make it look beautiful. You know, I can give you a crystal vase and 
depending on where you place it and whether you let dust dwell on it, it can sparkle and shine and look beautiful or it can look dull and dead and cheap. The vase never changed. It's just your presentation of it. And so we can take these truths, and some of these truths are challenging, and we can show the world how there's beauty here, there's wisdom here, there's goodness here. Oh, this may, not, this may seem counterintuitive, but trust me, it's wonderful, and it's right, and it's true, and we invite people into our homes, and they see, wow, that's different. We can adorn the doctrine of God. That, that, a lot is at stake as we embrace or reject God's pattern and God's call. So we celebrate motherhood. We celebrate womanhood. There's much to celebrate. But I just want to encourage us. This is the mark we're pursuing, where you see this. Husbands, encourage your wives to the degree that they're doing this. Young ladies, get the lies and the focus of the culture out of your head and understand what God is calling you to grow up into. Older women, come alongside the young women. They need help. And help them and encourage them as we pursue together these things. The, the sound teaching that leads to sound living that adorns God's truth in beauty. It won't be easy, but it's worth it. And we'll do it together. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we just thank you for um, your word. We thank you for our mothers, our wives, and our daughters. And Lord, we recognize that you have called them to a noble and high calling. You use them to create image bearers that you entrust into their care, the raising of our children so much. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to honor that, but you'd also help us not to deviate the target, not to believe the lies of our culture, not to reject and call evil what you have called good. Help us to run this race together fervently, encouraging and helping one another. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.